Uh, just be ready when I tell you to, which is going to be later, to put up Second Corinthians chapter 3, verse 12. Okay? <clears throat> Hallelujah. You guys are nuts. You know, we were supposed to have some heavy snow even by now. It was supposed to start at 7.30 this morning. And uh, I knew that it hadn't started yet because I was still up. I wasn't in bed. I wasn't, in, well, no, I, I, was, I was up, but I'd gone to bed at uh, 6.30. And I it, was, it hadn't started yet, but I said, uh-oh. And I was just expecting to, you know, if I did come, to come to a, an empty place. And you guys are amazing. Wow. Can't believe you're here. Um, <clears throat> so I did, uh, I, f- I finally got to sleep at 8.30 this morning. So that's why I was late. I, I just had to get some sleep. <laughs> Hallelujah. Look at this. We've got some great kids. Hey. Hiya. Reach your hand out in love. Um, Hold that hand out. Release your faith. Release your love. I was talking to Chad yesterday. And uh, Chad Baldanza. And he was saying, uh, referring to a scripture we all know in uh, Philippians 4, which says, Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I say rejoice. Uh, and then he said, because the Lord is at hand, at hand. And then he said, uh, by prayer and uh, be careful for nothing after that. Be careful for nothing. But by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your request be known unto God. And then he goes on to say, uh, you know, in the peace of God, which passes all understanding. And he said, and Chad pointed out that that the Lord is at hand isn't doesn't mean he's coming soon, but his hand is upon it. And that's why we can be worry about nothing but by prayer and supplication, because God's hand is upon it. So our hand is upon them. God's hand is upon our little children and we love them. Lord, we thank you, Lord, that your hand is here. We're in the right hand of your glory and fellowship. And we bless these children in Jesus' precious, wonderful name as they go uh, to learn of you. And we bless the teachers, Lord, that they can proclaim the gospel, the good news to these children in hearing ears. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's do a quick reverse, reverse re- review first. It kind of rem- reminds me, <clears throat> I got uh, a list of, I don't know if you have a Bible app, but if you have a Bible app on your computer or your iPad or whatever you have that uh, you use, and a good Bible app, there's, there's several that I've got on here, and if you want a list of translations, you can get a whole list of, you can, of, a, of a particular verse. You can get pew, like 30 of them. Of course, about eight of them are in another language that you can't read unless you're brilliant, you know. Uh, and I've studied a lot of languages. Uh, 
But <clears throat> so, yeah, it, that's really cool to, to be able to see all the translations of the Bible at the same time. But there's one that isn't on there. And it's called the RSV. And it's the um, Revised Standard Version. And that is not considered a very good translation of the Bible by a, a lot of Bible scholars, especially evangelical Bible scholars. Um, it, it changes some things in a way that we wouldn't particularly like it. And uh, I was thinking one time I was uh, brought the uh, Bible translations up. And I was thinking about the RSV and uh, someone who isn't here today, but you would know, most of you know him, says to me, you mean the reverse standard Bible instead of the revised? He said the reversed standard Bible because it actually has some things in twist, especially in the place of the deity of Christ, which is, you know, pretty much very standard believing on especially evangelicals part but just in general we believe in the deity of Christ how many of you believe in the deity of Christ amen well I was uh, again I was talking to Chad and I was sharing something that had been on my heart for some time Uh, when I say some time for about two weeks now I just suddenly got hold of a a verse in the Bible uh, and it just 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 kind of like now I knew this all along but it just there's sometimes that God just shows you something altogether I don't know alive and new and fresh that it reminds me of a commercial that I often refer to you may not have heard me before but there was this commercial one time of uh, I think it was Kellogg's cornflakes, you know. And there's this little girl, about four years old, is eating her cornflakes. And she looks up at her daddy and she says, Have I ever eaten these before? And he said, I don't know. And she said, Well, if I did, I liked them. So I imagine that I've seen this before. But I don't know if I liked it as much as I did do now. Uh, maybe I did. I don't see how I could not. But it was uh, from Philippians, the second chapter. We're gonna get, I'll give you a quick review of that. And uh, it starts off, the, pers- the place I was starting off is in the fifth verse. And this is one of the most appreciated, uh, loved, beloved, Bible in the uh, uh, verse in the Bible uh, verse verses and it says let this mind be in you which was also in Christ Jesus now we talked about that a little bit because uh, in the in these Bible apps you can go to it and just see all the Greek words for them and and then you can punch it and get all the definitions of the different words. And it's pretty cool. 
And uh, I also have a friend that I spent a lot of time with. As a matter of fact, one of the reasons I was up all night long is I called him at 11 o'clock, 10 o'clock his time. He lives in Amarillo, Texas. And he was my mentor when I was just a baby believer, baby Christian, 1973. And uh, I, it was such a, it was a short time that I had with him, but you can have a short time with somebody and it can be uh, an everlasting uh, experience. And I've reconnected with him and we spend a lot of time on the phone. And he is a Greek scholar. The only thing is he can read Greek and he knows exactly what it means in the Greek. Uh, with the exception that uh, he can't pronounce the Greek words the way they're supposed to be pronounced. He just pronounces the English way that they're spelled. You know, and he says he he admits he admits to that. He, uh, he can pronounce them. He just he knows it's not the way that it should be. But he has uh, studied in school the Greek. And uh, really, really, it's just uh, we spend hours on the phone together talking about Bible and stuff. And everything I'm going to talk to you about, we, it was, we've talked afresh about it. But it was, I, I found it interesting that this word let, and if you look in your, your little Bible app, let, and then the word mind, let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus. And, uh, and if you look in the, like I said, in my Bible app, it will say the word let and mind is the same Greek word. And I would pronounce it phroneo, P-H in the English spelling of the Greek. P-H-R-O-N-E-O. Sometimes in the A, okay? And so they're the, both the same word, let and fro. And, uh, you know, Chad is, is pretty studied up on uh, that kind of thing. We talked about it as well. And they both pointed out, why is that spelled? Why are they the same Greek word, let and fro? And there's two things about that is that uh, it's because it's kind of the whole phrase is one word, see? But when they put it in the English, they wanted to explain what it meant, saying just this one word that took the whole phrase up, which is phroneo, which is mind. Now, frequently the word mind is, is the same word for soul, is suke. You know, we get our word psychic from it, but not here. Phroneo has to do, and why they put the lead in front of it, it has to do with a willing attitude. As a matter of fact, in many of the translations, it, instead of mind, it will say attitude. So let this attitude. And an attitude is something that you have when you are willing to do something. You know, even in our, in our English language, if a person has a bad attitude, they're not willing to comply or to submit or to go along with the program or whatever. If they have a good attitude, they are. See, good, bad. And so this is an attitude. And it has the, it has the connotation that we let. 
this mind be in us. We have the attitude to God that we're going to let God do it. That means we're not going to, we're going to stand out of the way. But in order to let something happen in this particular case, you have to actually want it to happen as well. You have to be willing to go that way. And you say, it's kind of like what Jesus said in the Garden of Gethsemane. Not my will, but thy will be done. So you have to have that as let this mind be in you, which was in Christ Jesus. And now in order to do that, you have to know what, the, the, what was in Christ Jesus. Well, we know at the Garden of Gethsemane, it says, not my will, but thy will be done. But here it gives us some explaining. It says, it starts off by saying, who, being in the form of God. That Greek word form is, is the word morphe, which we understand because a lot of English comes from the Greek. And one of our English words is morphous or metamorphous. You know, when something goes through a change, uh, it's called a a metamorphous, like a a bug or something. And so we understand that word in the form, morphe. Literally, in all the translations, uh, it may say almost the same thing, but literally what it means is, in one translation, the New Living Translation, NL, NLT, says, though, instead of saying, who, Jesus that is, being in the form, NLE, NLT says, who being God. So that's exactly what it means. The form of God means he was God incarnate. He was, he was God, and then it says, though he was God, but what was he? God the Father, he was God the Son, right? Father, Son, and Holy Ghost. And this is what I'm going to tell you is something that is so awesome as far as the, the, what we believe is the Trinity is concerned. We are Trinitarians. And what I'm going to tell you is one of the most incredible, beautiful thing about God, but it's, and and you've got to take the whole thing as I'm going to say this, it's it's, God is insane, right? He's he's crazy. He's nuts. I mean, being crude. He is an idiot. Don't leave yet. Let me finish, okay? God's an idiot. All right? And we're going to find out all about why in a minute. But he says, though he was God, and I'm going to get like into the literal translation here. The King James, I I said last week, worst translation. I love the King James. But for us today, at this point, it's the worst translation there is. And um, of all the translations. When they wrote it, they, they probably under, had no problem understanding what it meant. But today, if we took it the way it sounds, and you may not take it, you may not think it sounds this way, but I've heard preachers preach sermons based upon how it sounds, and they thought it, sound, they thought it meant what it sounded like. I've heard national preachers, national, and, I, and then when I found out what it meant, 
I realized they didn't they didn't know what it actually meant. It means the opposite of what it sounds. It says in the King James it says, though he was God, he did not uh, think it was robbery to be equal with God. That sounds like he didn't see any problem thinking he was equal with God. It's just the opposite. What it actually means is, though he was God, he did not grasp to be equal with God. That word uh, uh, did not think of robbery, did not grasp, is, is grasp. And that word grasp is the Greek word horpagma, which means to reach out and grab it. So he, though he was God, did not think, and some of the translations say it this way, did not think equality with God was a thing to be grasped. But instead, it says, and here's the King James says, made himself of no reputation. Back in those days, when it was written, they understood what that meant. But what it empty, says there literally is he did not grasp to, to be equal with God, but emptied himself. What did he empty himself of? All the rights of God. So to be, and then it says, and he became a man. So how did he empty? And this is another thing in the, in the Greek language, which we miss out on, is the language flows in and out together in meaning. Not necessarily this weapon, and then this happened, and this happened. I mean, you can preach it that way, but it flows together. And so what he's talking about, not grasping to equal with God, became a man. And then it says he humbled himself to become, uh, to, uh, to be a servant. And then he humbled himself further to be a servant unto the cross. You see? And so all this, and it, it all gets back into the, and sometimes we, we have, we, we talk in conclusions. That's the English way of thinking. You got a topic sentence, and then you have the body, and then you have the conclusion at the end. So you, these steps go, ba, 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 conclusion. But frequently, then they would have conclusions, but they would also have inclusions. So the, the depth of the meaning of what they were talking about would be right in the middle instead of right thin. And so right in the middle is where this whole thing is being thing. It says he didn't grasp to be equal with God, but he emptied himself as all rights of God and he became a man. And so, and before, the, and, the, and how did he become a man? How did he not grasp the, to be equal with God? And how did he empty himself? He humbled himself. So he be humbled himself and came, became a man. Okay, so, are you following me so far? The thing that hit me the most is God humbled himself. Well, God, now God the Son, he was God the Father. Now, it in, it's going to involve God the Father as well. 42 years ago, uh, I was in a pastor's meeting here in Oneonta with Pastor Norm Moran and a whole slew of different pastors that we have today all around. And uh, somebody brought a tape. We were talking about covenant, covenant relationships. A covenant relationship 
it goes way beyond any other kind of relationship. Because once, once the, a covenant is a part of the relationship, it's until, you know, until death do us part, like, like, like a marriage. And so we were talking about covenant relationship. And he brought this cassette in by Derek Prince. Now, I thought I'd heard every sermon that Derek Prince had ever preached. Because I, I used to be a member of a club called the Hosanna Club. And there was a, a you could borrow tapes from them and then send them back. Or you could buy the cassette tape for a dollar. I just always bought it. But I, I, went, I listened to every tape that I could get a hold of of Derek Prince and Don Basham and Bob Mumford and Charles Simpson and uh, uh, Derek Prince and uh, Kenneth Hagan and Kenneth Copeland, all these guys, you know. And so I thought I'd listen to everything Derek Prince had ever made. And, uh, but this was a new one. And he preached on several verses. Uh, a few of us started with a few verses. I never heard anybody preach before, and I haven't never heard anybody preach since except me. And you know, I'm not trying to put myself up on some pedestal. It's kind of like, why? I don't understand it. I do not understand why this isn't talked about more. And if you've heard about it uh, from somebody else, I'd like to. I'd like to know who who it was and when. Because this is one of the biggest and greatest and most awesome things about God that there is. Um, And that is this. You guys know this is one of my favorite verses. Lord, uh, this isn't a verse. Lord, help me. (laughs) This is, please, Lord, just hold. uh, Open our spirits of our mind. uh, Open our ears. Open our eyes that we see wondrous things. Reveal to us, Lord, the, the power and the majesty of, of this revelation from you. But we'll start with Second, uh, Second Timothy 1 9. And uh, we're not going to look at it, don't have time. But you can look at it if you get your Bible. And it says how God saved us. It says He saved us. He's talking about God, the Father. He saved us. Past tense, saved us and called us. Again, there was a connection. He doesn't just save you, he calls you. Okay, he saved you, called you with a holy calling. Not according to our works, thank you Lord. But according to his grace and purpose, which was given to us before the world began. Before time began. Wow, how is that possible? He saved us, called us. Any of you looked that verse up while, I was ta- while I've been talking? Is that what it says, Ginger? Yeah, it says that. And you go, then you go to Titus uh, chapter 1, verse 2, I believe it is. How God promised us eternal life. And what does it say? You got that one? And then what does it say there? Did you hear that? 
which God, which cannot lie, promised before time began. And then I heard Derek Prince speculate on how that happened or what, what transpired at that point. Now I was talking, talk, I talked all this over with my friend in Texas and then as, as well. And these, when I said I had conversations, I had three hour conversations with one three hour conversation with Chad, one with my friend from Texas. And um, it's, 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 it's like, it was wonderful, okay? And uh, it's talking about, and this, is, this is incredible right here. Derek Prince was, and this is speculation, we, how, how that happened, we don't know, but it happened. He promised you. He saved you. Past tense. Well, for starters, time, God doesn't operate in a time-space world. In Psalm 90, it says that yesterday is but a thousand years. Yesterday is but a tale that is told. Yesterday is like a thousand years to God. So, I mean, it doesn't operate in time. And so he saved you, called you, and it says he promised you eternal life before the world began. Now, those were the two verses that Derek Prince used. We could use a lot. There's a lot more. Ephesians 1. He blessed us with all spiritual blessings in heavenly places in Christ, according as he hath chosen us in him, in Christ, before the world began. That's Ephesians, the first chapter. He called us, saved us. Once you, once you get that picture in your mind that he did this before the world began, you see all the other things that are connected with this. You see that when he says before, it doesn't even have to say before the world began because it, it's all, for example, Ephesians 2.10. We are God's workmanship Poima, okay, poima, workmanship. We get the word poem from the word poima. We are God's poems. We are God's workmanship created in Christ Jesus, which God hath before ordained that we should walk in them. Okay. What you'd have to say to yourself, before what? Well, we know what before. God, we are his creations, his workmanship, poems, which he hath before the world began. It's all connected together. So, and there's other places. When it talks about we, he saved us, he's called us, he's justified us, all the things that's in Romans 8, and glorified us, and all these things, predestined, we've been predestined, before the world began. Predestined means pre-before the world began. And so you get all the other, you begin to get the pictures of all these other scriptures, and it all has to do with before the world, world began. So how does it happen? It doesn't say. 
But in putting it in human terms, which we can get some kind of picture of it, it would go something like this. And Derry Prince shared this. And, and you know, he, he's, a, he's a guy who says, you know, you don't have to. This isn't thus saith the Lord, but this is the way I expect that this happened. That it might have happened this way. The Son is at the right hand of the Father. Before the world began, the Trinity existed. Father, Son, and Holy Ghost. And the, the Father says to the Son, we are going to create man. We're going to create a world, the world, earth. You know, in the beginning, God. Let there be light. We're going to create these things. So we're going to create the world. And we're going to cre- create man. And, and man, you know, like in our own likeness, in our own image, a, a direct reflection of who we are. Except for one thing. This is, this is what uh, Ern Baxter said in a tape one time which stuck with me. And uh, it's, uh, again, it's speculation on the scripture. And he says, he made man in his own likeness, in his own image. And by the way, in the beginning, when he made man, man was a complete person uh, in a sense that when he said man, in, in the beginning, made a man, uh, that Adam... Well, that's, I don't want to go into the name Adam, but man um, was had wo- woman inside of him. He was man and woman, okay, until they were divided. And okay, so anyway, he said, "I'm going to make man." He said, but "Man's going to fall." Well, if if he's in his own likeness, his own image, and everything, how how is he going to fall? There is something that God wants to do. This is Ern Baxter. There's something that God wants to do in man that cannot be done the way that he created man in the beginning. You know, the dust of the earth, that word is dam, dust. It means red, and it also means blood. And he made man out of the blood of the earth and out of his own blood. He makes man. But there's something about man that doesn't exist in man that is like God. And that was the only way that this could happen is by God making man and man was going to fall. And then God was going to save him. And the one thing that through the salvation that God could impart to man or wouldn't be would be imparting to man his love so that now man can be like God in the true sense and true nature of God and that is love for God is love according to 1 John 4:7 God is love and so that had to be done only by saving him. And so he says to the son, man's going to fall and the only way that we can save him is you, my son, is going to have to become a man. Fully God, fully man. Born of a virgin. Where we celebrate Christmas time.
And you're going to have to become a man and you're going to have to take his sin. And save him. And in doing that, they can be like us. They can be like love. They can be love. Do you follow that? So he says, will you do this? And of course, Jesus being God the Son, sees the whole picture. The Holy Spirit, they see the, the, the Trinity, they see the whole picture. Which we don't see. And this is, what, this is my heart's desire. Is, and I'm going to be very selfish about this to start with. I want to see it. And I'm going to suggest to you, this is absolutely true. I don't. I get a little picture of it, and that blows me away. And what is that? you got to go and die for man. And he says, I will. Now, that is how, and, 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 and here's something else, that when he says that, just like Adam, when he created Adam, he had woman in him. Okay? Well, see, when, he, when, he create, when Jesus is there at the right hand, how is it that it, it doesn't say that in 2 Timothy that he... Uh, He promised eternal life to Jesus that would be transferred to man. Or he, he promised salvation and a calling to his son Jesus that would be transferred to man. He doesn't say that. What does he say? He says, we'll just take the one verse, how he promised us eternal life before the world began. What does that mean? That means that we, were, we had a promise given to us. Now we can say because he doesn't, you know, it's not involved with time, it's all together. But the thing is, is that's not the, the reason. It's, the reason is, is be, how he could do that is because we, as woman was in Adam, and we are the church, right? And the church is the bride of Christ. Like Eve was the bride of Adam. We were in Christ when this happened. All right? We were saved, called, chosen, his workmanship, justified. Glorified in Christ because Christ, we were there in Christ. And so he would go to earth, and here's, here's something really cool. First time I heard this was, well, the only time I ever heard this before, Bob Mumford and me, you know. And if you don't know who Bob Mumford is, by the way, I just want to point out that Billy Graham, and you do know who he was, said that Bob Mumford was his favorite Bible teacher. And Bob Mumford is very strongly and has been very strongly connected to Elam Bible College. 
And, and uh, Bob Mumford said this. The first Adam, God says, I, and I, you're kind of alone, even though you, it's all in you. But it's not good. So he says, he puts him to sleep. Puts the first Adam to sleep. And he reaches in his side with a rib and takes out a rib. And he creates woman. Now, woman was inside of Adam, but now he's not. Now, she, now she's not. Now Adam is incomplete without her. The two shall become one. So Adam finds his completion in woman. That's the way it's God designed marriage to be. In the, in the Bible, Jesus is called the last Adam. Sometimes he's called the second Adam. He's both the last and the second Adam. God the, the Son is on the cross and he, God the Father puts him to sleep and he opens up his side. He put a spear in his side. Out pours blood and water. And God creates Jesus' bride. The church. Which was in, in him. Which that in itself is a mind blower because see, Jesus is the son at the right hand of the father now is incomplete. Without his bride, the church. In Colossians, it says you and I as individuals, we find our fullness and completeness in him. But see, he doesn't find, Jesus didn't find his completeness in me. He finds the completeness in us. All the believers, all past and present, all over the world, the bride of Christ. So you see how these things all fit together. This is remarkable. But we were in Christ before the world began and we were promised these things. And so he comes to earth and he says, you're going to have to become a man. Now, this is the thing that I was really seeing this the last two and a half weeks. I just couldn't get it out of my head that God humbled himself and became a man because God the Son is part of the Godhead. And uh, being part of the Godhead is, you know, they're, they're connected, they're one. And God the Son is, uh, is going to humble himself and become a man. Now, when I was talking to Chad, he says, you know, in the East, Eastern Orthodoxy Christianity, there's one thing they do not understand about Western Christianity. And that is we put all the stress, stress or importance, you know, the, the whole thing is on... The, the crucifixion of Jesus Christ. Yeah. Preaching of the cross to them that perish, it's foolish. That's where I get God. God, not, He's a fool. From a worldly perspective. Okay. So he says, Eastern says, they put equal value on 
deity becoming a human being. And so this is something that I saw in the last couple of weeks, is that when God humbles himself and becomes a human being, that was as great and big, as big as the cross and crucifixion and resurrection is, that was as big as that. It was big. It's like, wow. How dumb can you be? How ridiculous is that? God is, he's pretty stupid. To become a man for us? That's really ridiculous. I like to say it's insane, but I also like to say, sure love him for it. And and as far as the cross is concerned, it says in in, uh, Hebrews 12, uh, to also follow his example of Jesus, who, for the joy that was set before him, endured the cross, despising the shame For God to become a man was shameful. This is God. How dare he? And I'll tell you something. Other religions look at us from that perspective that, that the, you know, man aspires to becoming God in philosophy and all the other man-made things. Not the other way around. God becoming a man. That that, some people actually think that lessens his deity. No, it just shows you what God did to save us. It's absolutely mind-blowing. He humbled himself. Now, if you listen to, you know, Tim Keller, like I listen to a lot of his stuff, he says, the only thing you've got when coming to God we talked a few weeks ago about second uh, chapter of John where Jesus made water into wine. And the party ran out of wine. And the mother of Jesus comes and says, we have no wine. And we could talk about that whole thing again, but I'm not. I'll just say this much. There's a picture there of that whole thing, Jesus making water into wine, of what he came to do on earth. And there's a picture, and it says, the way you come to God is to say, I got nothing. We have no wine. I have nothing. We're, I'm, I'm bankrupt. I'm out. That's called humility. Saying, God, I, I got, I've got nothing to give you. We come to God. We humble ourselves. That's why the Sermon on the Mountain, which is my, one of my favorites of all things, starts off with something that the entire foundation of the Sermon on the Mountain rests upon. The first beatitude, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And we're not, this is not talking about not having any money. Poor in spirit means I got nothing. Blessed are the humble, for theirs is the kingdom. And then all the other things uh, is predicated 
on that. You have to be humble when you come to God. That's the only thing you have, can bring him. If you bring anything else, it's going to be a tight door to get through. But we come through Jesus and we say, I need you. How I need you. I got nothing. So we come to God humbling ourselves. James and Peter, 1 Peter, humble yourselves. James, James 4, 1 Peter 5, humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God. And he will exalt you. Humble yourselves. So we think in terms of humbling ourselves. There's several scriptures about that. But this says God humbled himself. Well, see, that's one thing Jesus never said. He says, I'm going to ask you, ask a a lot of amazing things from you and out of you, but it isn't anything I didn't do. I did it. He humbled himself. It's like, wow, he humbled himself. God humbled himself and became a man. And then it continued. It was the one picture. It was, it was a, a whole, you know, it goes back eternity past where we get promised eternal life, promised salvation, promised, you know, we're chosen. And then he humbles himself and become a man. You know, then he says, you know, on the cross, when he says, my God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? Here's something that my friend in Emerald, Texas said, we were talking about this thing, these things. And uh, he said something that took me back. If I'm saying some things that take you back, get just like, whoa. Well, he said something that took me back. I was like, well, I don't know if I quite see that the way that you see that. And, uh, as we went on, I was thinking about it, and I thought, wow, is this true? Now, on the cross, Jesus says, my God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? Partially because that was prophesied that he would say that in Psalm 22. It starts off, my God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? And then Psalm 22 is all about the crucifixion. You know. Of course, Psalm 23 is why the crucifixion. In Psalm 24, it's about the resurrection. 22, 23, 24. Partially, but why did he say that? Not barring that it was prophesied he would say that. It's because at that point, God had forsaken him. Because when God poured out all the sins of mankind on his son Jesus then because Jesus was sin God turned his back on his son and uh, my friend in Amarillo says that was the one thing that God the son didn't know was going to happen I, and I, I have a little trouble with that one and, um, and he says is there any other verse? Is there any other thing that God has withheld from the Son that the Father knows and the Son doesn't know? Is there? Somebody? Somebody that knows the Bible? Tell me. There's something. 
Jesus said it. Second coming. Jesus doesn't know the time. He says only the Father knows. So I got something going there. But what he says, what my friend said, is that's why he goes, my God, my God. He wasn't ready for that. I don't know. Because, see, here's the thing is. I believe, and I have a lot of scripture to prove it, that when Jesus died, he went to hell. Why? Because he was made sin, according to 2 Corinthians 5.21. He was made sin with my sin, your sin. And talking about things crazy in, in Romans 5, this, this kind of gives you a clue that God's crazy, all right? Because he says in Romans 5, once in a while, a man will die for a good man. But nobody's going to die for an evil man. But Christ did. And it goes on and says, while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. You think about what, when you were the most sinful part of your being, that's when Christ died for you. And so he was made sin. And uh, I was reading a book recently, and he made it just a complete, the guy, it's called The Insanity of God. And he wasn't talking about it the way that I'm talking about it. But he did make this, the term, he was talking, he was going to Africa and talking about the terrible things that are going on in Africa. It just makes you think, wow, it's like the worst thing that's ever happened to me is like having a hangnail and complaining about it and seeing somebody that's a quadriplegic, you know. The things that are going on that human beings do to other human beings. And this guy makes this comment, he says... He says, everybody knows, every Christian knows, every believer knows, that what hell is, is basically the absence of God. See, that's the absence of God. <laughs> you know, one time uh, in the classroom setting, uh, the professor says there's no such thing as good and evil. And this was a science class. And a, a person raised his hand, mind if I ask you some questions? And he says, is there such a thing as hot and cold? And he said, uh, yes. No, he says, no. He says, hot exists, heat exists, but cold is just the absence of heat. And he went on and talked about a couple other things like that. And then he says, you're right in that sense. There's no such thing as good and evil. There's just evil in the absence of good. <laughs> I mean, evil is the absence of good. The, that guy that said that to this person was Albert Einstein. He's the one that was asking the questions to the guy. And he says, you're right, there's no such thing as cold, it's just the absence of heat. There's no such thing as evil, it's just the absence of God, of good. And so this guy says, every, every, most believers believe that hell is the absence of God. 
And this is where I believe Jesus went to hell. But I don't think when he said, not my will, but thy will be done in the Garden of Gethsemane, he was not, um, it wasn't the cross that he was, let this cup pass from me. He wasn't thinking about the cross. He was thinking about the fellowship that he had with the Father being cut off. Because he was made, when he gets made sin, with our sin, the Father withdraws from him. Wow! And it all started before the world began, and it started when he became a man, and he humbled himself. Even going to hell was not the big issue. It was the fellowship being cut off that he had had for eternity. And so he cries when it happens. He cried like sin would cry. Why have you forsaken me? I don't even know why. He didn't even understand it at that point because he was made sin. And then he went to hell and he took our sins and he deposited them there But hell could not hold him. That's the promise. He says, I will not forsake your soul in hell. Neither will I suffer you to seek corruption. I will raise you from the dead. If you go and die for man, you become a man. You go to the death of the cross. You die. I think he knew that he was going to be separated. That's why he was sweating great drops of blood. I think he knew he was going to be separated If you will do that, I will not leave you in hell. Because see, he was righteous. Though he was righteous, it says. He was made sin with our sin, though he was without sin. And he left him there and he defeated death. And it says in Colossians, he spoiled principalities and powers and made a show of them openly, triumphing over them in it. So this is what he did. And it starts with, he humbled himself and became a man. And he humbled himself all the way to the death. And that's what it means. He says, despising the shame, because it was shameful that Almighty God should become a human being. That was shameful. And it's even more shameful that he would be sin. Be made sin. But he despised the shame. Ooh, that's a Christmas gift you can think about a little bit. He became a man. We were promised eternal life in him. He came to the earth and he became a man. I, 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 I don't think we really can see how, or I can't. I try. I want to just see how wonderful that is. And what a great task that was for God. And here's something else that I believe. There's nothing in the Bible that confirms this. But I'm going to tell you, I'm, so, I'm convinced. I'm not going to risk my salvation on this, by the way. But I'm convinced that when God wanted to do that, and the angels got wind of that, they said, there's no way this is going to happen. It cannot happen. Because Why? The Godhead had never been divided before. 
Do you know that there were seven major covenants in the Old Testament? You had the Edenic covenant, the Adamic covenant, the uh, Noahic covenant, the Abrahamic covenant, uh, the Mosaic covenant, and the Davidic covenant, and the Messiah covenant. Seven covenants in the Old Testament. All of them were fulfilled in Christ. All the covenants in each in one way or another reflects what Christ is going, is, is going to happen to Christ on the cross. They're all part of God's plan. Well, when God made a covenant with Abraham, there were three ceremonies. In each one of these ceremonies, you can connect with Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. The first one is, is where and he's, he puts Abraham to sleep and he has a dream and God cuts up these animals. In the dream, it's like a vision he has. And God cuts up these animals and he divides them into pieces. One piece on one side and one piece on the other side. And then the smoke, which is God, the Holy Spirit, the Holy Ghost, passes up and down through the pieces of animal that are divided back and forth. And Abraham knew what that meant. It refers to, we get a little glimpse of what it means by if we read Romans 6. I mean, excuse me, Hebrews 6. Hebrews 6, which says, God, when he made a promise to Abraham, made a, 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 a promise that when you make a promise and you swear by that, if you swear by a greater, that means that the greater can make you keep the promise or you're dead. That's what it means when we put our hand on the Bible and said, you know, I promise to tell the, whole, the truth, the whole truth and nothing but the truth. So help me God. May God strike me dead if I'm lying. That's what, that, that's what you're saying. God could, there's no greater to swear by. So he swore by himself. Saying, surely blessing I'm a blessing, multiplying I'm a multiply thee. He swore by himself, which means if I don't keep my promise, I will destroy myself. That's what that means. Read it in New Light if you want to. Hebrews 6. So when he's passing between these two animals, up and down, he turns around, comes back. What he's saying to uh, Abraham is if I fail to keep my promise, what happened to these two animals is going to happen to me. See, he swears by himself. Not only does he do that, but, and this is what, he does it in advance. How does he do it in advance? The animals are God. We know that, but when we read Hebrews, all the sacrifices were uh, in, the, in, the, in the temple, each and every one of them, Jesus was. He was the lamb, he was the goat, he was a... Azaz- 
He was the goat that was sent to Azazel. He was the bullocks. He, he was all the other. He was the turtle dove. All the sacrifices. He was it. He was the altar. He was the priest. He was he 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 was everything. That's when he goes into the the sins of mankind reached all the way up to the holy of holies in heaven. Do you know why? I know that because it says in Hebrews. That when Jesus ascended into heaven, he brought his own blood. He's carrying his own blood. And he said he washed the holy utensils of worship. They washed the holy utensils of worship. So this sacrifice is reveal, it's revealing something about what Jesus did for us. God divided the two pieces of the animal. The Godhead was divided. There were other things that happened. The the next ceremony is man had to be circumcised. If you can handle this, you may not be able to. When Jesus was crucified... That was a form of circumcision of God. Man, flesh, cut away, flesh. He's keeping that. And you know the third ceremony where he's told to go up in the mountain and offer Isaac up? And Isaac was the son. No, that God offered up. And a lot of teachers believe it's on that very hill. Galgotha Hill was right outside of Jerusalem. You know, and God stops him and says, Jehovah Jireh, I will provide. And there was a, a bullet for a sacrifice provided. And what used to be Salem became Jireh Salem at that point. All of this is amazing. It fits all together. So all the things that were happening in Abraham's covenant happened when Jesus was crucified. It was all symbolic of what Jesus was going to do. Wow, it's pretty cool stuff. Before the world began, it was all planned. And I believe that, like I said, I believe the angels are thinking about this and they say, can this be? God can't do that. The universe ain't going to be able to handle that. You divide the Godhead like that. It's going to end it. Everything's going to be ended. J.R.R. Tolkien was a Christian and believed that he would reveal the things of God in his fantasy books. He and C.S. Lewis were best friends and they fellowshiped together and they talked about how they wanted to reveal Christ in their books. C.S. Lewis took a more direct approach in his Chronicles of Narnia uh, 
and you just couldn't hardly miss who that Aslan is Christ in the in the book. Whereas C.S. Lewis works in and out. I mean, uh, Tolkien works in and out. And when they go through this one stage, it's called Fellowship of the Ring. There was nine of them that were going to take this, go on this quest to take this ring back and dump it into the Mount Doom and save all the rest of the world. And when they're in this one place, there was this bullrog, a demon from hell. And it was this giant fire that had whips. Pow. Whips of fire. And so the wizard uh, takes on this uh, bull rock. And it is huge. And he stands between the bull rock and the other eight. And they're escaping. They're escaping. And he stands and he's got his staff and he puts his staff on the the ground and he says, Thou shalt not pass. And they get in a fight and they're fighting. And they tumble off and they fall into the abyss fighting all the way down until you they disappear into the abyss. So then the eight that are left, the next thing they come to the land of, of the king and the queen, Gladriel. And they say, where is Gandalf? And they were like, and Gladriel says, he is lost. And then she says, the, uh, the, tw- the quest that these are on. The quest is standing on the edge of a blade. And one mistake, and it be- could be the ruin of all of us. And I thought, glad, you know, what is Gandalf? It's fighting the, the bullrock. What's bullrock? The devil. What's Gandalf? Jesus. And he's fighting with him all the way to the bottom. And he's lost. And the vision is on the blade of a knife. Balancing on the blade of a knife. This is where the angels think. The vision. The quest. The thing that God wants to do is balancing on the blade of a knife. Oh, is this going to work? I know God can do a lot of things, but can He really do this? Can He do this? Nobody knows. It's never been done before. Of course, we know that Gandalf comes back. He was Gandalf the Grey. And he comes back Gandalf the white. What is that? What's that? Yeah, what is it though? The resurrection. 
See, Tolkien was trying to reveal Christ in all, in and out, in and out. I believe the angels were saying, oh boy, this is going to be risky business. Can this happen? Can this be done? It's to the ruin of all of us if it doesn't work. Why would God do such a thing? Well, he's God. He knows this is going to work. Yeah, sure. If it, if it was that way, why would he reveal this thing, this whole thing? Why is it all... And I'm not talking about the stuff that I suggest that it means. I'm talking about the scriptures that actually say he was made sin. Why, if, if it's no big deal, it's all going to work. Big deal. I disagree. I, I think God risked it all. I think he put it all on the line for us. He put himself on the line for us. He's all in. He's all in. For us. That's stupid. That's insane. That's ridiculous. That's idiotic. That's reckless. Boy, I sure love you for it. But what's insane to the world is awesome to us. He is awesome. So I was going back to this. Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus. And I made this thing, you know, the word let is because God just says, all you got to do is let me do it. Let me do it. That doesn't mean we don't, the the power we have is to say yes or no. The power we have is not my will, but thy will be done. God, I give you, I give you this vessel. Do it. Do as thou hast said. That's what David, that's what Mary said. David and Mary said exactly the same, referring to exactly the same thing. David, it's in uh, 1 Chronicles 17. David says, I want to build God a house. Tells Nathan, I want to build God a house. Nathan says, beautiful idea. I Live in a palace while God lives in a tent. I want to build God a house. Good idea. Nathan walks away. God says, go back. (laughs) Tell him he's not going to build me a house. So Nathan goes back and says, God says, you're not going to build a house. But your son is. And his house is going to last forever. Was he talking about Solomon? Not really. Solomon was the start. He was going to build the physical house, but he's talking about Jesus. And David is totally overwhelmed. And he says, oh God, you've loved me from since I was just a little boy. And you've been with me through all my mistakes. And now, Lord, and I'm, I'm cutting a whole long section here into this section here, right here. He says, and now, Lord, let the thing which thou hast spoken... Concerning your servant, David, and concerning his house, be as thou hast spoken, and do as thou hast said. 
And when, and then when God goes to Mary and says, you're going to have a son, Mary says, what am I that you should do this for me? And now Mary, now Lord, do as thou hast said. That's all we got to do is, Lord, you said it. Do, do as thou hast said. Hallelujah. Let this mind be in you. God wants us. See, he wants me to bring humility, but Jesus did it first. He humbled himself. Wow. Pretty cool, huh? I could, take, I could go on a long time for this. That's the review, and I'm out of time. All right. We're saved before the foundation of the world. We're called. We're chosen. Jesus came, became a man. He humbled himself, and he humbled himself and became a servant. And here's something that I was actually going to talk to you about rejection. And I'll talk about it next week. God willing, I will show you how to handle big, big time rejection. The worst rejection you have ever had or ever will have. What God wants you to do, metaphorically, spiritually, not necessarily literally, but God wants you to do is what Jesus did when he humbled himself and became a servant and he washed the disciples' feet. And one of those disciples was Judas Iscariot. He washes his feet. God wants us to wash the feet of those that reject us. And then after he washed the feet, he broke bread with Judas, with the twelve. He broke bread. There's a verse in the the scriptures. Oh, my familiar friend has lifted up his heel against me. It's a prophecy about Judas Iscariot. God wants you to, in knowing, knowing that this bread is your life and this wine is your blood, he breaks bread with the one that deserted him and rejected him the most, Judas Iscariot. He still loved him. And that's what God wants from us. Let this attitude be in you, which was in Christ Jesus. You say, I can't do that. Well, I can't either. But if I let God, he can do it through me. Let's pray. Thank you, Lord, for loving us. With your eyes closed, I dreamt about this for a couple of nights. I was dreaming about this. And I woke up dreaming in a state of dreaming, and I said, oh God, I want to let you. And God said to me, I heard him in my spirit. I didn't hear it all. It wasn't audible, but it was just as clear as a bell. Let me love you. Well, I know he already loved me. He loved me before the foundation of the world. He loved me when God became a man. He loved me at the cross. He loved me in, after the cross, and he loved me through the resurrection. 
But God says, let me love you. Let that love that I did for you become a reality in your life. Let it happen. And I said, God, I just want to let you love me. I want to let you love me. Oh, God. And then I want to give that love out. I got a ways to go. I'm yours, oh Lord. Hallelujah, hallelujah. Thank you, Lord, for loving us. In this Christmas time that's coming up, may we be mindful that you became a man for us. Wow, that's big. You are a big God. But you're a humble God. Wow. Thank you, Lord, for all of it. In Jesus' name, amen.